the mind can only absorb what the seat can bear. And so if I remember about halfway done this evening, I'd like for the song leader to be prepared just to lead out in a verse of song as we stand and give our seats some relief. This morning, hopefully we laid a groundwork for going forward. Uh, we talked not only about separation and nonconformity in Anabaptist history, but also hopefully a biblical groundwork, a framework for why all of that? Now, this evening and uh, the next two evenings, focusing more particularly on distinctive applications of ways in which Anabaptist people have attempted to uh, live pleasing to the Lord in, in uh, applying Scripture. And two distinctive features shared by many conservative groups of the Swiss branch of the Anabaptist uh, American Mennonites are the plain coat and the caped dress. In fact, these two articles of clothing are practically uh, a touchstone uh, for us in that many people who practice those two particular applications also practice many other things in common. We feel a certain kinship with people who tend to practice uh, that the sisters are wearing cape dress, dresses and, and uh, that the men are, are wearing plain coats, or at least they have one in the closet. And we saw in the morning's message that, that nonconformity uh, in Mennonite, Anabaptist Mennonite history is, uh, includes the, you know, the practice of simple or plain clothing uh, among Amish and, and uh, Mennonites, and it's practically as old as Anabaptism itself. In the very first year of Anabaptism, uh, it was noted that there was this humility in the way they attired themselves, and we pointed that out this morning. But where did these two particular forms of dress come from? Did Anabaptists wear straight-cut coats? Uh, did Anabaptist women uh, wear capes on their dresses? Is there some biblical principle involved? Or are we just mindlessly trying to perpetrate some long-held cultural practice that really has no value? Uh, somehow now that we've convinced ourselves that it's important, that it's valuable, and, and so we're just trying to pass this on from generation to generation. Where, where, is, where are we at on this? Where, where did it come about? How did it come that I'm here standing before you with a straight cut or a plain coat? This morning I emphasize that our applications of nonconformity should be biblically based. And so let's begin uh, our study of the development and practice of the plain coat and the cape dress by looking at one aspect. You know, there's a number of biblical of aspects of a biblical teaching that inform us or guide us in, in the way that we dress, in the way that we present ourselves. And so I just want to look at basically one aspect of that this evening as we look into the biblical base uh, for this, for these two applications. And it has to do with simplicity. And so let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look, first of all, at the biblical basis for simplicity in personal appearance. And so let's read... 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Now remember I read from Minna Simons this morning where he said, if this is what Peter and Paul said for, for the women, how much more for the men? And so while this is addressing women in these two verses, I do believe that the principles are for men as well. Um, obviously, just because of the nature of, uh, of womanhood, it, it seems that, that uh, there's somewhat more temptation there for ladies, but the, the principle is, is the same for both men and women. So let's read those verses. In like manner also, the women that women adorn themselves with modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls, 
or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. And this is the biblical basis, I believe, for a form of personal appearance that is, and I'm quoting from the dictionary, not decorated or elaborate, elaborate, but is simple or ordinary in character. Not decorated or elaborate, but is simple or ordinary in character. And that is the definition, the dictionary definition of the word plain. Now in truth, we cannot take the English dictionary definition of plain and run away with that because the Bible instruction here revolves around the word modest, not plain. And we use the word modesty in two different and yet similar ways. One has to do with decency, clothing ourselves in a way to avoid sexual suggestiveness. And the world often does the very opposite. It clothes itself intentionally to be sexually provocative or sexually alluring. And so one word, one uh, aspect of the word modesty has to do with decency. The other meaning of modesty is very similar in meaning to the word moderation. For example, when we talk about a modest house, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about one that was moderate in size or appearance. And so modesty is the quality or state of being relatively moderate, limited in or small in amount, rate, or level. An, ant an antonym or an opposite of the word modest is ostentatious, something that's designed to impress or to uh, attract notice. And this is how the word modesty is used uh, primarily in, in the verse here in, in uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Apparently, the meaning of some of the words in this verse, it talks about in the King James here, it talks about modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, and it's kind of like cutting the, the bologna. It's kind of like cutting the meat. It's, it's kind of sliced kind of thin. There's there's similarity between these, these words, and so if you go to the NIV or if you go to the New King James or some other translation, instead of necessarily saying modesty, shamefacedness, and sobriety, it might say modesty, decency, and propriety, or, or different words. And so you'll notice that, that, that in the English translators trying to translate the Greek words into English uh, are, are using different words to try to to carry those concepts, and, and apparently there is a certain similarity within those words in the, Greek, in the Greek language. Regardless of, of how the various words there are to actually be translated, modesty is the thrust of this passage. And it's not sexual modesty primarily, but simple modesty. Uh, rather than trying to just tease out the shades of meaning of what those different words mean, I want to read from a non-Mennonite commentary, a, a, um, from the Bible Knowledge Commentary, which um, comes out of a, a place in Texas, a seminary in Texas. But, but notice what this man says, that his understanding is of the meaning of the words in this passage. He says, these terms stress not so much the absence of sexual suggestiveness, though that is included, but rather an appearance that is simple, moderate, and judicious, and free from ostentation. And so this verse, in like manner also that women, and I believe it includes men, adorn themselves with modest apparel, with shamefacedness. Shamefacedness maybe has more the idea of reserve, and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. This is the biblical basis, at least the primary biblical basis, for uh, dressing ourselves in a way that is what we call simple, that is moderate, that is not showy, that is not impressive, like a modest house uh, or a modest automobile or modest clothing, not so much Clothing that is not revealing, but clothing does not scream out and say, look at me, 
see me, see my wealth, see my, my finery, see how, how uh, decked out I am. Now, I would point out that the Bible does not specify exactly what simple clothing is or what modest clothing is. Neither does the Bible exactly specify what modesty means in terms of sexual modesty, of decency. In my church, the standard says that women's dresses should be well below the knee when standing or sitting. Um, that is speaking to the sexual aspect of modesty, to the decency aspect. And I had the good fortune of just about the time that I was ordained to function as bishop that the styles started asking for long dresses. And uh, it pretty well lasted for the duration. And so that was not one place where I had to spend a lot of, uh, I had to spend energy and have to, have to beat uh, on, on, that, on that drum. But our church has specified a certain level of modesty in terms of ladies' dresses, that the dresses should be at least this long. And you know, we do that same thing in, in other aspects. Uh, the Bible does not say really in all detail exactly what it means to have a moderate or a simple uh, way of, of attiring ourselves. It's to us as individuals and to us as congregations or fellowships or whatever to come to some understanding that, well, in our culture, in our time, we would like this measure, at least this measure of simplicity, this measure of, of moderation in our clothes. And so, you know, we ask that you, you don't do this or wear that or, or, or the other. And no, it is not, thus says the Lord on every detail, but, but we are trying to apply the scripture to come to a certain measure of application both on the decency side of modesty and on the moderation side of modesty. Okay, with that foundation then, uh, I'd like to go on to think about the Mennonite Anabaptist practice of simplicity and clothing. Apparently many of the early Anabaptists were distinguished by their simplicity of dress. Uh, we noted that this morning. As another example, there was a reformed pastor um, from the Swiss Emmental, writing in 1693, and his purpose was to try to persuade his parishioners that they didn't need to be Anabaptists. Well, you could be a good Mennonite, you could be a good uh, Christian, I'll put it that way, I misspoke, you can be a good Christian by being Reformed instead of by being Anabaptist. But that was the context of, of uh, what he wrote. But he said about the Anabaptists, and I quote, in their distinguishing themselves in outward clothing from all other honest people, do they not thereby make it understood that they are not adverse to being recognized among the people so that one can immediately say, this is an Anabaptist. And so, at least among the Swiss Anabaptists or among this group of Swiss Anabaptists in the latter part of the 1600s, the way they dressed, uh, they could be identified in some way as Anabaptists. More specifically, this man, as he wrote, he said this, they wear no collars around the neck and wear nothing embroidered or of lace or anything else that our rural people consider pride and ostentation of dress. So how did it come about that Anabaptists could be distinguished? That, well, this is an Anabaptist, you know, like today. Well, this is a Amish, or this is Mennonite, or this is conservative Mennonite, or this is Beachy, or, or whatever. How did that distinguished or, or distinctive dress come about among some Anabaptist Mennonites? Well, the historical record is not entirely clear on whether some forms of dress were by deliberate choice or whether they came about as a result of resistance to change, uh, thereby retaining some older forms. But whatever the role that traditionalism or conservatism may have played, Anabaptist Mennonite dress reflected the taking of scripture to heart. And a particular focus over the centuries, as I mentioned this morning, was this matter of pride. And we already noticed it this evening in the quote that I gave. There was a real concern about pride, about you know, dressing yourself in a way that 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 draw attention to yourself and, and it 
that burnished your pride. Now, I believe that in the last century, we, at least in my circles, I don't know about yours, but that we have kind of moved away from this thing of using pride as a, as a caution uh, as our society has become more slutty and have become more um, indecent in their dress, we are pushing the modesty, the, the, the uh, sexuality side of dress, the indecency side rather than the moderate side. And so, so we're telling our people, look, don't dress in such tight clothes or don't dress in such revealing clothes and, all that. and we're pushing that more then we're pushing uh, this thing, what, what, don't dress to, to show off with your finery. So I think we've shifted, and I don't know if there's anything wrong with that. Pride is still an issue. We need to guard against that. I'm just observing that I think that the aspect of, of modesty that we've pushed on more in more recent years has been the decency side rather than the moderation side. It's a matter of, like I said, putting the grease of the wheel that squeaks, and that's the wheel that's that's squeaking now. Another thing that has happened is that until the last about 125 years, uh, Anabaptist clothing was regulated, but it was regulated by what was prohibited rather than what was required. Now today, a lot of the regulation that goes on in our churches is is what is required. We require that you wear the cape dress, or we require that you wear a plain coat, or we require some other things. And, and apparently prior to that, uh, there was very little, if any, happening in mainstream Anabaptism. It was rather, we forbid this, and we forbid that, and we forbid the other. And, but what happened was over time, it, it kind of had the same effect, is that a certain type of dress developed one time because it was certain things were prohibited and another time because certain things are, are required. But it developed a certain uh, distinguishing uh, style that people became recognized in part by their plainness of dress. And it developed over time into a standard way of dressing. Well, now let's look more specifically at this matter of the plain coat, the origin and development of the plain coat. Where did this particular present day application of the straight cut plain coat come from and how did we move into requiring particular styles, particular this particular, especially this particular style? Well, according to Stephen Scott, uh, who used to work for Merle Good up in, at uh, Good Books, yeah, up in Intercourse, um, Stephen Scott said that the practice of wearing a coat as a part of man's suit began in the 1660s. The general Western European and colonial men's coat was a standing collar coat that buttoned up to the top. You may find it interesting to Google Western European standing collar coat. After church, please. Western European standing collar coat. Now that doesn't mean that men's clothing and coats were plain, at least for dress-up clothing. Edsel Burge said that paintings of people of high social status uh, often depict them with large pockets or cuffs or big buttons or a variety of collars. And so it'd be like if, okay, so if I had a, a plain or straight-cut coat on, but but uh, you know I had these big uh, big uh, pockets or different things that happened to make it, make it stand out, even though it was straight cut. And so that's the reason he, he refers to it as a stripped down, a, a plain version, if you will, of what was in common practice. This uh, particular standing collar coat that was common in Western Europe and in the colonial period of the United States was something that kind of went out of style at the beginning of the 1800s. And what happened was that the collar rose higher and higher uh, until it was turned down to become a lapel coat. How many of y'all have ever heard of a lapel coat referred to as a roll collar coat? 
That must be a Virginia thing because, you know, I heard it referred to as a roll collar coat. And, and that's really, you know, kind of what it is that the coat got bigger and bigger to a rolled. And you see these notches here? You look on a lapel coat and they are there like vestigial organs. Uh, and so that in itself gives some indication of where the lapel coat came from. It was this standing collar coat with the notches that the collar got bigger until it was rolled down and it still has those things and it still has these little button slot, these little, uh, like a buttonhole like in the lapel of, of coats, at least some of them yet today. So after the 1800s, the early 1800s, or 1800, the standing collar coat was very rare among the general population. Another thing that happened in terms of men's coat was that it used to be that uh, men's coats were frock coats. And some had long tails. And those, I believe, were so that you could uh, ride a horse properly and your coat could fall down on, on either side uh, of the horse's back. Well, what happened was that that frock coat um, became a short coat and, and is called a sack coat. Um, I don't know where it came as a sack. Uh, maybe it just is kind of, so what I have on and probably what most of you men have on who have a coat, that's a sack coat. It's not sackcloth. I guess it just kind of looks like a sack. <laughs> I don't know, but it's a short coat. And, um, and then around 1900, some groups began to put standing collars on these sack coats, and so they created a new kind of plain coats. And some groups that are resistant to change still have the, require the frock coat even today, or at least among uh, some of the, uh, among the, the leaders. Well, I mentioned this morning how industrial changes in the 1800s brought about affordable manufacturing clothing and the younger men of, of uh, plain dressing groups were specially influenced. And so they began to exchange their, you know, a little more dumpy, homemade uh, clothing for store-bought suits. And the change became so pervasive in the U.S. West that uh, only the ordained wore the standing collar coat. And apparently this moving away from dressing plainly, not only by men, but also by women as well, alarmed some of the church, and so there was a shift from, from uh, this shift happened from more restrained thou shalt not to thou shalt. And so then it became this push then of how you should dress rather than how you should not uh, dress. And so this started in earnest around the turn of the 20th century and gained momentum for uh, several decades. Uh, another book that was published uh, by Merle Good, uh, I Merle Good, Good Books, is a book called uh, Mennonite Women of Lancaster County, 1885 to 1935. Have any of y'all seen that book by A Secret? I forget what her first name was, but it is an interesting book. If you want to see what your great-grandmothers looked like, uh, or the Mennonite great-grandmothers anyway. Uh, and so they were affected as well. And I don't know, maybe they were pre-church um, members, but, but you see a very uh, immodest, immoderate addressing of, of Mennonite women uh, during that period of you know, frills and finery uh, that was not, was not plain dressing during that time. And so the church you know, push back against that. And so that's what led, in part at least, to this thing of church requirements uh, on what you one should wear. Well, today, the plain suit is combined with not wearing neckties. And the wearing of ties in modern times is traced to the 30-year war, which was 1618 to 1648. That was in Europe, and um, the French, the, the Croatian mercenaries who the French hired used a kind of a knotted uh, kerchief, neckerchief, scarf to hold their shirts or their jackets closed. 
And the French were uh, impressed with that. And of course, the French are known for, for style, and they became impressed with it and took it from there to make it the dress staple that it has become. Uh, the French word for necktie is cravats. I don't speak French, so I mean, I'd be, say, uh, I think that's the way you, you say that, but it actually comes from the word, French word, cravate, which means croat. And so the French word for necktie is the word for croat, because that's where it came, you know, they picked up this idea of tying something around your neck, but it might have been instead of a, a top button that they tied this to, to, to hold this together. Maybe it was a style statement as well, who knows? Well, over the years, Ties have taken different forms. And so uh, if you look at a colonial picture, uh, perhaps uh, James Monroe or James Madison or somebody like that, and if they have this kind of fluffy tie, that is called a cravat. And apparently cravats uh, began to give way to bow ties around the beginning of the, of the 19th century. Um, around the beginning of the, of the 1900s, these uh, bow ties began to give way to long ties, and, and Mennonites seem not to have taken issue with the wearing of some form of tie until around the beginning of the 20th century. In some cases, a tie may have been used for the same thing, to hold your coat or to hold your, your shirt together. Shirt collars didn't always have the stiffening in them that they, they do now. Women needed to starch and, and iron those shirt collars. I don't know how many of your mothers did that or your grandmothers that you put it in this starch and then they'd get it out and iron that and it would stiffen up your shirt collar. And some men, like my maternal grandfather or J. Otis Yoder, who taught it was a Millwood Bible School, uh, that... They wore this cellulose collar. It was kind of a plastic collar. And if you think buttoning your shirt collar is bad, you ought to put one of those things on. It's just kind of like a plastic collar that you put on top of, of your shirt. And then the women didn't have to scrub your shirt as much. And it was more formal looking. You just take that thing off and, 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 uh, and wipe it off. And I never wore my grandpa Blosser's uh, a thing as an adult, I just put it on as a child, you know, but I think it was probably fairly uncomfortable. But anyway, th that's, what, that's what men did. Some men did, and then it's, it uh, saved a lot of work in washing men's shirt collars. But as ties developed into the modern tie, some Mennonites considered some form of the bow tie with its traditional association to be acceptable, but a long tie to be flashy and worldly. And while that still resonates with some people today, others find it perplexing and inconsistent. Now, I don't know how long it's been, but Brother Aaron Lapp Jr. stayed in our home uh, one night. How long has that been, 12, 15, 15 years ago or such a matter? And, and I guess your history book was kind of new then, and so he gave me a, a copy of the Weavertown history book. And I pulled the thing out uh, a couple weeks ago and was doing some looking at it. And so I noticed ties in your background as a church as well, at least, at least bow ties. And I don't know when it became unacceptable to wear bow ties here at Weavertown, but, but that was a, a transition that happened. And it used to be that at least some form of tie did not have the disapproval among Mennonites that it does among conservative um, Mennonites now. And it seems that one catalyst, at least one catalyst for dispensing with the tie was a connection that George Brunk I, then of Kansas, who had been the father of the George Brunk who had the tent meetings here back in the 50s, uh, and he was of Kansas at that time, and he had a connection with the holiness people who wore a lapel coat uh, with no tie. And so he and other influential young church leaders uh, promoted getting rid of ties, and while it generated some controversy, it gained traction to where, for example, Virginia Conference warned in 1902 against wearing flashy neckties, and then by 1920 endeavored to have all church officials cease wearing ties, and by 1941 advised all brethren not to wear ties. 
They never did accomplish that. I grew up in Virginia Conference uh, until I was older teenager, and, and there always was uh, certain people who, who wore ties without, uh, without a plain coat, but all the leaders wore plain coats. The first, uh, the first minister that I know of in Virginia Conference who wore a tie in modern times relative in modern times, it would be old times for some of you younger people, but in my lifetime was a, a man uh, by the last name of Jansen who came into the area to uh, work at an old folks' home, and uh, he was from the General Conference Mennonites probably, and, and he wore a tie, and he was accepted at, uh, at the Weaver's Church just uh, west of, of uh, Harrisonburg, or maybe it was the Harrisonburg Mennonite Church that that he was a minister. But anyway, after World War II especially, many people just revolted against these dress standards and that became a major issue in the breakup of the church uh, to where you have uh, you know, a large section of the Mennonite church have assimilated into cultural norms for personal appearance and uh, those who practice some degree of distinctive simplicity for uh, their personal appearance has has become um, sifted out into other under groups. In my thinking, the the period of time when plain coats and cape dresses in the larger Swiss Mennonite church uh, lasted was about seventy five to hundred years, and so before that time. Uh, you know, it was don't do this, don't do, do that, don't do things for pride's sake. And then there was this strong emphasis on plain coats and cape dresses. And then, you know, you take Lancaster Conference, for instance, or LMC as it's called now. Uh, then they jettisoned that, and that period lasted about 75 or 100 years. All right, I want to move on then to, um, I, I would just say that, that, uh, you know, the plain coat then had its origin in a type of coat that was common among Western European colonial American people, who many of us were. And it was a, like Edgelberg says, Burge, it was a stripped down, it was a modest, a moderate coat. And we have retained uh, that, that, uh, that to, to this day, that practice as a way of expressing moderation when we wear a suit. I have a little bit more to say on that as we uh, wrap up. But now it's time for you to stand and for us to sing a song and we'll go on to the Cape Dress. Shall we all stand at Care Two and will our song leader just lead us in singing one verse of song. While the plain coat addresses the aspect of modesty that has to do with simplicity, the cape dress addresses the aspect of modesty that has to do with decency, addressing the matter of sexual allure. And so who invented the cape dress? Well, basically, the origin of the cape dress is very much like the standing collar coat in that it was in general practice in European society, at least as early as the 1500s. And that, incidentally, was the time when Anabaptism started in the 1500s. Again, according to Stephen Scott in his book, Why Do They Dress That Way? The cape is found in many surviving Western European folk costumes. And so they have these you know, German folk costumes or Swedish costumes or whatever that people don't normally wear, but when they dress up for some festival or something. And what he's saying is in those folk costumes, which represent the way people used to dress, those 
uh, dresses, the cape is, is, uh, is often retained, a part of that, of that uh, dress. And Scott conjectures that its wide appeal to country women was in its modesty and in its privacy uh, for nursing a baby. Now, there's a man by the name of Melvin Gingrich, and Melvin Gingrich uh, wrote a book called Mennonite Attire Through Four Centuries. And that book was published in 1970, I think. And so when he wrote it, it was actually a little before then, but, but he wrote this book. It was published in 1970, Mennonite Attire through four centuries. And he says that it's hard to trace uh, Mennonite women's dress before the age of photography because a uh, few women set for portraits and the women who did set for portraits, the Mennonite women who did set for portraits were probably not the conservative women. And so it's a little hard to see, well, exactly how did women dress back then because we don't have that visual, uh, much visual evidence. Nevertheless, he does describe some drawings and paintings that do exist. And as I read through this, many of his descriptions do include some form of, of, of cape. And he says, in fact, and I'm quoting from him, the dress of American Mennonite women in the periods for which information is available, although plain, avoiding the ornamental, followed the silhouette of conservative dress worn by other American women, except they continued to wear the cape and apron, which many other groups had discarded. Now, Mr. Gingrich taught at Goshen College, which is not considered, a, a, it was especially now, it's not a, a conservative college, but even when he taught there, it was not a particularly conservative Mennonite college. He taught there from 1949 to 1970. And he flatly states that capes are not a Mennonite phenomenon. In other words, capes are not something that Mennonites invented. Capes are something that common people wore uh, in Europe as early as the 1500s. And the specific evidence he gives in making that statement is from pictures of English women in, uh, from a book on custom in which he said at least seven women are wearing the equivalent of modern Mennonite capes. And he also cites uh, paintings and pictures from both Mennonite and non-Mennonite women from the 1600s to the 1800s wearing something, uh, some form of cape. And he concludes, and again I'm quoting from Mr. Gingrich, from the endless evidence of the cape or similar garments in England, Germany, and Holland, one must assume that here again was a commonly accepted article of dress which conservative Mennonitism retained after he had gone out of fashion in Europe and America. Now, while I was studying for this subject, and I, I gave some of these talks over in E-Town, Elizabethtown, at Park Street Mennonite Church, uh, October of, of uh, 2022. And, you know, Brother Aaron was there, and he laid hands on me, and so that's why I'm here now, because one thing led to another, and so here, here I am. But while I was studying for, uh, for that, my wife and I were over in Big Valley at Bethel, at um, Belleville for a wedding. And it was around the time of our wedding anniversary, and so we took our time going home, and I enjoy history. And so we went over to Mount Vernon, and I'd been to Mount Vernon, George Washington's home, when I was a boy, uh, but I hadn't been there since. And then we went on down into Virginia and looked at a couple other historic sites. But one of the things that impressed me about Mount Vernon is that he had a wonderful view of the Potomac River. It sets up there on the bluff, and it is, it is a gorgeous view. But there was another thing. So I was studying this subject, uh, and there was two portraits there in Mount Vernon of George and Martha. And guess what? George was wearing a standing collar coat with a large notch and a fluffy tie, a cravat. I guess you would call it, and Martha had on a short cape and a head covering. Now, they didn't look exactly like how we are, you know. I mean, they were people of some, uh, well, I don't know how wealthy he really was. You know, some of those people were had a lot of debt, but they were people of stature in society. And so, you know, her head covering, uh, and I'll, I'll refer to this again tomorrow evening, her head covering was not as plain as uh, a Mennonite uh, cap covering, uh, and, and his coat, you know, his, his attire, he had ways to, 
to uh, show out a bit. Uh, but that same basic thing is, is right there. And so go to Mount Vernon and see it if you don't believe me. Uh, if those portraits are still there, which I assume they still are. Now, I'd like to camp here just for a moment. So while the exact styling of the present-day plain coat and cape dress have changed some over the years, they're not some innovation that our uh, Anabaptist forefathers or no, our Mennonite forefathers back, uh, uh, you know, George Brunk I and Daniel Kaufman uh, later and, and some of those people just sucked out of their own thumb. It was something that was uh, clothing that was common practice coming out of our heritage as, as to, uh, our Western European heritage and colonial heritage. And the way that heritage actually has, uh, you know, there is this way the Western world dresses and even beyond the Western world. And so, you know, the basic uh, form of dressing, a shirt and pants and jacket and this type of thing that, that come out of Western Europe is something that, that we took and adapted or used the plain style of it to then make application for simplicity in our own personal appearance. Now the question is, if you go to India or you go to some other place, of course India, some of their dress is Western and some of it is not. But if you go there, you go to other places where they are not necessarily wearing Western style clothing or whatever, do they have forms of clothing in their history that can be adapted to simplicity, to modesty, uh, that, that suits uh, in, their own, in their own setting. Just as we have adapted the plain coat and the cape dress, are there forms in other people groups that can be adapted, maybe made more simple, more plain, more moderate, more modest, more decent, but yet can be adapted for these applications? And I think that is right. Uh, that there are different ways to adapt the matter of modesty, whether it's simple modesty, uh, moderate modesty, or whether it is decent modesty. Now, let's talk a little bit more about the form that the cape actually took. Cape patterns have evolved over time to the type of pattern that most conservative Mennonites wear today. Originally, capes were a large square piece of cloth folded into a triangle. And later, instead of taking a large square piece of cloth and folding it into a triangle, they just simply made a triangular piece of cloth, and uh, then that triangle was draped over the shoulders forward with the points, two points forward and one point uh, in the back. And uh, so then you could fasten the cape uh, here in the, in the front at, at some place, uh, at the neck or at lower, and the two points were either allowed to hang straight down, loose, or fastened at the waist, or crisscrossed, and, uh, and fastened at the waist. According to Gingrich, this triangular cape with points hanging free in the front to the waist was the pattern of Lancaster County Mennonites, Mennonite women, even as late as the 1920s. How many of you remember any of that? But there is a group, a conservative group, that wears a cape similar, the, the German Baptists. You've seen those uh, sisters that have uh, capes that, I'm not sure if they're pointed or not, but is a, a loose hanging, and maybe even some have, have points. Well, so then following that, it was followed by a cape being a near rectangular piece of cloth with an opening for the neck, which was then sewed into a belt. And in my home circles, capes are now simply sewn into the waistline as an integral part of the dress. Now, I see something of this development uh, of the cape pattern in uh, Rockingham County, Virginia Mennonites is where I was born and raised. My maternal great-grandmother was born in 1862, and in a picture when she was 20 years old, she's wearing a large triangular-style cape. It hangs several inches over her shoulders and appears to be fastened at her neck um, under her collar, and the front points are unfastened. They're hanging slightly below her waist, and they're gapped several inches in the center. And so she had that triangular piece, one point in the back, draped around, pulled forward, fastened here. That's what 
Uh, she was like, it would have been about 1882 when she was 20 years old. Well, in 1913, uh, she's pictured with her husband. She's been married now for 31 years. Her dress has a rectangular cape, which extends a little over the shoulders. It has a pleat at the neck and gathers at the waist. And so this pleat here at the neck opens up and gives more fullness uh, to, to the cape. I remember my mother having a detachable cape. It was sewn into a belt. And, you know, when I was a boy, I, I didn't pay the world's most attention to those sort of things, as probably most boys uh, don't. But I believe my mother wore capes to church, but not always at home, and that eventually changed to sewn-on capes worn all the time. And my mother's practice illustrates that uh, changes came into the Mennonite church. Uh, you know, just as young men were influenced by the changes of styles and by uh, store-bought suits that had lapel coats or whatever, so there were, there were influences uh, there were influences on what the sisters wore as well. But then with this resurgence of the conservative movement, uh, beginning in the 50s and all, then my mother became more standardized in consistently um, wearing a cape dress. Well, at the turn of the century, of the 20th century, in other words, in the early 1900s, with that emphasis that I've talked about several times of, of renewed emphasis on plain clothing, then capes were one of, the, one of the things in Mennonite circles that were emphasized. And so again, Lancaster Conference, the first written discipline of Lancaster Conference was 1881. And in that, it does not name any specific articles to be worn. And so you see it reflected that thing of what you should not do because it protested against pride and haughtiness in every respect. But it didn't say anything that should be worn. That was 1881. By 1926, the conference specified that, so that was, what, 45 years, a plain dress is made up of plain goods, full to the neck, the sleeves long to the wrist, the skirt long enough to be modest in every way, the waistline properly observed and retained, the cape must not be omitted. And so that reflects that shift. Well, you know what happened to Lancaster Conference. A few years ago, 15, 10, 10 or 15 years ago, there's a lady in our church uh, who went to Lancaster Mennonite School, and so it was her, her 50th uh, anniversary of, of her class reunion, and, and she... She had, uh, so the students there, they submitted a page, you know, about what has happened to them in the last 50 years or whatever. And, and uh, I borrowed that book, or she loaned it to me, and I read in there people, and of course by that time, most of her classmates had turned liberal and some had joined, at least, you know, one had joined uh, the Catholics and all, and, and so there was, but as I read that, there was a lot of bitterness. There was a lot of bitterness in, in that book. There was a lot of people who conformed, but they conformed against their will. Uh, you can read John Ruth's book, uh, and John Ruth's book, The Earth is the Lord, which is a history of Lancaster Conference, and, and he talks about clothes, and, and he kind of pokes, pokes fun at, at their standards. And, and so part of what happened was, I believe, is that they enforced strict standards. Uh, Richard Herr said that it seemed like every year at communion time, they came back and there were stricter standards, you know, strict standards. They enforced strict standards, but people were not convinced. Uh, and so they were, uh, there was enough strength there in their discipline to oblige people to do things for a while. But when that, when, when the weight shifted and then it just, went very, very rapidly among some groups. Uh, and so that's instructive to us, you know, if I can reemphasize what I said this morning, it's not a matter of just of forcing people, it's a matter of, this is what the Bible says, now how are we going to apply it? There needs to be a, there needs to be an understanding, there needs to be an appreciation of what the Bible is saying and, and what is, what is the, 
the principle. And so uh, a plain coat or a cape dress is not a flag that says, I am Mennonite, I am Beachy, I am... No, that's not it. It's not a flag to identify who we are. It is an expression, it is a way that we're trying to, to apply biblical principles. And I'm saying the principle for a cape dress is to modesty in the decency side and the principle for a plain coat is modesty in the moderation side, not to be showy and fancy. Now in conclusion, the plain coat and the cape dress both have their validity and their problems today. The cape dress is sometimes misunderstood or misappreciated, underappreciated, or both. And as I say, it's not a flag to mark um, your religion or your denomination. It's an aid to modesty. And consequently, unless or until that is understood and accepted and appreciated, its purpose is neutered by dresses that are too tight or too clingy or by the use of sweaters or other accessories that tend to shrink wrap the feminine form. There's a Methodist businesswoman in a town where we do some business and um, in, in South Carolina, and she once told one of our sisters in the church, we don't make our dresses as tight as you do. This woman, nothing, I mean, she's Methodist. She's, she don't wear a cape dress, and this sister wears a cape dress. But what she said was, she observed that we, our Mennonite women, made their dresses tighter, even though there were capes, than she did, which are not capes. So the cape dress is not the only way to make a modest dress. In fact, it's prevalent evolution and presentation is certainly not always the most modest way a woman can be dressed. Actually, in the standards of our church, the church that I'm a part of, it speaks of a modest cape dress. Not all cape dresses are modest. Nevertheless, Despite the shortcomings of some cape dresses, I don't have the confidence that the level of modesty among the sisters, either in your church or in mine, would improve by discarding this pattern in favor of some simple exhortation that you sisters should dress modestly and, um, and be decent. It's an application. Now moving on to suits. The standing collar plain suit. You can go to goods and buy one. There's no goods where I live. And so when you get, when you get into the more remote um, Mennonite communities, it's, it's more difficult to get a, a plain suit. You have to buy, either got to go to Pennsylvania or Virginia to buy one, or you, or you get a, a lady in the church that will change it over. Uh, and so my sister changed this coat over for me. Um, and probably they don't get paid enough. She didn't charge me anything uh, to do it, but few women really want the job uh, to do that. And so plain coats are increasingly difficult to secure outside of large conservative Mennonite communities. And not only that, suits themselves have fallen on hard times. In fact, the whole concept of dressing up has been redefined by practice to lesser standards. I saw a picture probably few years ago by now, but I think it was when President Biden was president, so it's been fairly recently, but it was of the leaders of what they call the G7 nations, certain nations in Europe, and maybe Japan, the United States, and, and those people were, were standing there with suits and open collars and no ties. Fifteen years ago, ten years ago, that would have never been. They would have never dressed that way, and so it's not just that you know, in your circles and in mine, that suits have fallen on harder times, that people are dressing more casually, that, that's reflected uh, across, across the board. Uh, a few years ago, I went to buy a pair of dress pants and a dress shirt, and I noticed that stores carry a reduced inventory, at least in our way, of dress clothes. And so dressing up is a controversial issue that's really beyond the scope of my assignment, but if we're truthful, Probably we have made some accommodation to that. In 1973, January 2 of 1973, 
I flew to uh, Guatemala in VS, and I wore a suit. When's the last time you wore a suit to fly? I haven't worn one myself for a long time. Uh, perhaps not since then, to fly. So in spite of less stuffy standards, most people still have ways to feel like and to communicate that they are dressed up, even if some of us fail to read or appreciate their language, that I am dressed up. Some person may feel that they are dressed up in a certain pair of sneakers and a certain kind of jeans or whatever, and we may, some others of us may not really uh, appreciate or understand that. Be, uh, one father was disgruntled about the church asking his future son-in-law to wear a suit at his wedding, and he said, well, there's lots of ways to dress up. Indeed, there really are. And that's precisely one value in the plain suits. Suits, plain suits, or suits for that matter, are not mandated in Scripture, but suits, suits still have a life in many settings where conservative Mennonites live. Uh, there are still people in Lancaster County who are not Mennonites that there is an appropriate time for them to wear suits, to be dressed up. And so it is a part of what is seen as a matter of propriety, of dressing up, that we're giving respect uh, to the occasion. And the plain suit is a way to present oneself as fully dressed in a plain and simple manner. So remember that the plain suit and the cape dress are not ends in themselves. They are applications of modesty. Modesty is simplicity and modesty is decency. And so allow these principles to, to shape other of your applications, both your personal standards and those of your church. I'll give the time back over to Alfie. Well, a lot to think about. Appreciate that perspective and very balanced, I think, and a lot of history. And thank you so much, Wendell, for being here. <clears throat> Come back tomorrow evening. Uh, subject tomorrow evening will be on the head covering and the styles. And I'm sure he has a lot of good things to talk about there, too. So um, bring your church family. Thank you, visitors, for coming. Come back again. And we'll have another good evening tomorrow evening. So bless you as you. Uh, leave here. I think we'll have a closing song. Um, why don't we stand? And if you'd lead us in just a verse or two of a closing song, let's stand.